turn together this evening for just a few moments in, in their Bibles to the book of Revelation. And uh, as Brother Dean has said, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. I think we're, well, we're several months, maybe a year, two years, I don't even know anymore, into it. And uh, the farther we get into it, brother, and the, the, just the deeper and more amazed I am. And uh, tonight in our prayers, we're praying for brothers who are being killed in Indonesia and all across the land. And just a more appropriate verse as we take our Bibles together this evening and uh, begin here, if you will, in Revelation chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Of course, uh, we will not be doing all of those, but in order to keep us again in context, as we go verse by verse, as we bring again to our minds the glorious truths that we've been wading through here in God's glorious word. Well, these are indeed, brethren, we believe, the very words of sovereign God himself. Looking there again as we take it up in verse number 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Amazing portion of scripture, isn't it, as we listen to uh, even our prayers tonight. Blessed are they which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, and the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had the power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Well, again, brethren, there is so much here as we take up the word of God again. And tonight, as we analyze, as we look at verse number 13, we see there that John is instructed by the Spirit of God to write the second of seven Beatitudes that we find in the book of Revelation. And we looked at those when we began to go through the book of Revelation right at the beginning. We, we see the first one, amen. Blessed is, are those who read and who hear and who act upon the word of God, amen. So that was the first uh, Beatitude. This is the second one here, and it is a most amazing thing. Blessed are they which, the dead which die in the Lord. This, of course, brethren, is a promise for, from God. It is a promise and also, if you will, a great reward to his faithful elect martyrs. This blessed here, as we look at this in verse number 13, means to esteem or account happy. Literally, it means to make exceedingly happy in the future state of eternal life. Now again, brethren, as we look around us, as we look, as we fade, as we get older and our bodies start to break down and we, we, uh, we, we just begin to break down, we begin to understand this text in a much clearer light, if you will. It's an amazing thing. The Lord here is saying that those who die in the Lord leave. 
this harsh. And we've been looking at uh, the, uh, the judgment of God, and we've been uh, seeing the things that is taking place during the Great Tribulation. And these saints, it's an amazing thing, they leave this harsh, unholy world and arrive safely, brethren, in a better country. Amen? This is what the Bible certainly speaks of concerning this. And this is something, again, that the saints of God have always looked forward to. Amen? And when I was younger, again, I didn't understand it quite like I do now. I understand it more and more and more. It's becoming more and more clear to me as I age, as I get near 60 years old. It's hard to believe, brethren, that, uh, that I'm almost there. It's a stunning thing. And again, this is just, Sethy and I were, were talking today. I wonder, Dad, if you'll live to be, what was it, 80 years old? We were talking about 80, I think, or something like that. And he says, I'm going to be such and such if the Lord lives, allows us both to live. And it's an amazing thing. And, and we think of just how quickly that goes and how this thing is fleeting, brother. It is a fleeting thing for sure. And again, this is a promise of God to his elect martyrs, to those who are, remain faithful as he allows them to be. I want you to see again what the Apostle Paul said concerning this. And again, this is a common thread throughout Scripture. A believer who truly has trusted in Christ and truly is infused, if you will, with the Holy Spirit of God. These are the things that eventually become clearer and clearer to us. Is the glory of God and how much better it's going to be. Because again, brethren, we've, we've lived a fruitful life. I have to say, in my generation, it, it really is an amazing thing. I've, brethren, I've said it before, I've wanted for nothing. Think of that for a moment, brethren. Think of what an amazing thing that is. That when I get up in the morning, I have food. When I'm cold, I turn, in fact, I set my alarm early and I get up and turn the heat up in the house. And by the time I get out of my warm bed, it's nice and warm there. And I get into a warm shower and I get into a vehicle that's warm. All these blessings, I mean, they are just blessings upon blessings. And yet... They are becoming more and more faded to me, and that's a good thing for the brethren to have. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Again, Paul, again, writing concerning this glorious truth. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. And, and of course, John here is speaking specifically of those who are in the great tribulation, those who are the tribulation saints, those who are being martyred during the tribulation. But again, this is a theme that Paul, that the Bible has taught over and over again. Even clear into the Old Testament, brothers, Daniel speaks of these things. I mean, it's, it's an amazing truth. And clear to the very end, the Scripture teaches us, brethren, over and over again, that indeed... This life, if this is our best life now, <laughs> brethren, we are in deep trouble. We are in deep, deep trouble. Look there again, if you would, at Philippians. Again, as, as uh, Paul writes under the inspiration of God to us, look at verse number, chapter 1, look at verse number 19. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now, he's saved. That literally means deliverance. That God, once again, is going to be faithful to him. That God is going to deliver him. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so also in Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. This is how the believer should view this. This is how we should come to understand this, that blessed are they who die in the Lord henceforth. Amen? It's an amazing thing. Look at verse number 22. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I wot not. I don't know. For I am in a strait betwixt two Having a desire to depart, now, brethren, that's a difficult place to get to, amen? I think once we, again, get to a certain age and our bodies have completely broken down, there is a desire that we have. Our, our, desires, our desires change from this world to that place that the Lord has prepared for those whom he has saved. Look what he says here in verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is what? far better. So again, we even see here that Paul himself teaches that this life is fleeting, these things are going to be gone, and there's a much better and more holy country for you and I. In fact, look at Hebrews, just again as we look at the book of Hebrews. Now, many of you remember, I preached through the book of Hebrews, or on portions of the book of Hebrews some years ago, and one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is that things are better, amen? There's a, there's a better covenant, there's a better sacrifice, there's a better. It just continues on and on and on as, as the author of Hebrews writes through that particular, through this particular letter. But look at Hebrews chapter 11 again as we, as we veer into the faith chapter of the Bible. Again, speaking of some Old Testament saints, the Old Testament saints that were faithful. And uh, this is what they were looking for, brother. And this is what, obviously, John is talking about in the book of Revelation that Paul speaks of and the Bible speaks about, having this understanding and this desire for that which is better and much more holy, if you will. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Look there, if you would, at verse number 13. Look what the Scripture says. After speaking of Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, The Bible says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire, there's that word again, they desire a better country, brethren. This is the idea that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And so again, this is the idea here, brethren, as we look around at the world that we live in, as we heard tonight in our prayers in Indonesia and all over the world, our brethren are being uh, murdered, they're being killed for for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and giving it all up, just like as we read on in the faith chapter here, these glorious elect are there um, are there working and working through that and being martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby taking on, as Paul said, for me it is better by far. And so we see that there. Also in, chap- in verse number 13, we notice that the third person of the Trinity is there. The Spirit of God also joins in. And again, this is why it's so important, brethren, as we look at Scripture, the, the Holy Spirit of God there in verse 13 he joins in in bestowing on this special blessing upon the saints that, that John is speaking of. 
which is, of course, of great significance to us. It really is. Again, it just affirms what the Bible teaches that systematically, page by page, and all through as we see there. The Spirit's intimate, if you will, involvement in the lives of his people during the times of the end. And again, brother, that's where we're at. We're in the Bible. We're seeing a preview, if you will, of the times of the end. This is what is going to take place. And so again, we see the importance of the Spirit of God that is there also in, intimately in their lives. He draws our religious affections, brethren, to, their, to the blessed rest that we're all looking for, to their Sabbath, that one day will be ours, brethren, and the reward that awaits them in eternity. And again, brethren, we, we sometimes don't think about these things. But I do. It's bizarro. It's like I get up in the morning and I think about now because I'm closer to the end than I was when I was Peyton's age or Keith's age or these younger brothers and sisters who are here this evening. It's an amazing thing what God does to us as he, as he works on us, as he if you will, sanctifies us as he makes us more and more like Christ. Those things of the world become less and less. And certainly here, these brethren, these elect saints, certainly need that encouragement as they are in the thralls, if you will, of the great tribulation. Now look there, if you would. Look at verses 14. And we're going to read verses 14 through 20, just as a, so we can kind of, if you will, not clump them together, but kind of see the context there as we unfold this text this evening together. Look there at verse number 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Well, verses 14 through 20 bring an end, brethren, as we said earlier, to the interlude that we have been actually in since chapter 12, verse number 1. There's been a ceasing, of you will, if you will, of the action. If you remember that, chapter 12, verse 1, begin this interlude. And as chapter 14 ends, the interlude ends. It's an amazing, stunning thing. And you just, I get chills when I was studying this out, just thinking about what God is going to be doing and what a sovereign, holy God is to such a wicked world that we live in. This thing really begins to unfold as chapter 14 ends, the interlude ends, and the unfolding of the horrors of the final days of the Great Tribulation commences once again. And again, brethren, this is what we've seen. You remember that the book of Revelation is not written chronologically. We're seeing some things, and then we move over here, and we look at this, and then we're brought back again into the situation. And so I thought it would be good, brethren, just for a couple minutes tonight, to be, if you will, by way of rehearsal, for us to consider in a quick Reader's Digest condensed version where, you know, the holy ground that we've traversed so far in the book of Revelation. Just let me quickly remind us. In chapters 1 through 3, we remember that we see there, don't we, brethren, that the Lord Jesus Christ wrote letters to seven literal churches. This is how it starts. He speaks of, John speaks of the brothers. He's in tribulation with them. And then we see the Lord Jesus Christ as he writes these seven letters to the literal, actual, local churches that existed during the time of John. Chapters 4 through 11, you remember, revealed us to the chronology of the tribulation period. And this is where we've been, just again, from different views of the tribulation period. 
This is what we've seen. It takes us, chapters 4 through 11, takes us from the beginning all the way to the end of the terrifying period of time. And chapters 12 through 14, they keep us there. Chapters 12 and 14, again, keep us in the same time period, if you will. But the Holy Ghost leads John to move on from recording the chronology of it to the characters of it. It's an amazing thing. We've been introduced to many characters. It's the same time frame. It's the same time period. He's just, by the Spirit of God, leading us and pointing us and showing us the characters of this time. It's an amazing thing. And again, through the series of visions that we've seen, John takes us again through the days of tribulation. Tonight, we've arrived in our text to the seventh vision. This is now the seventh vision that we've seen in the book of Revelation, and it is a most interesting thing. It, but it is a vision of our Lord when he comes again in his great power and glory. That's what verse 14 is all about. Let's read that together again. And I looked, again, he's seeing this vision. He is seeing, if you will, a preview of the second coming of Christ. And again, it's not chronological. He's just simply uh, opening and previewing for us the Lord Jesus Christ coming in his great power and glory. And it is an amazing thing. And there's much, I don't know, I, I can't seem to see it in the text, but there's much controversy over who John sees. I mean, there's no controversy to me. It is an amazing thing. He definitely sees who? The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, sitting on a white cloud. It's quite an amazing vision that John sees here uh, and, and then records for us. Now remember, brethren, that this title, the Son of Man, again, is so important to us. It's one of the titles that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ when he emptied himself, when he condescended himself down, when he came down from his glorious eternal sonship and he put on flesh and he condescended himself down to the earth. When we see immediately he is called the Son of Man. It is his human title. It identifies him with mankind. It speaks, brethren, just such an important title, such an important thing that the Spirit writes for us in the, Spirit of, in, in, the, in the Scriptures. It's quite an amazing thing when you understand that. It speaks of his sufferings. It speaks of his holy priesthood that he, as he serviced, as he walked the earth. It speaks of so many things. It speaks of his high great priesthood. It speaks of his propitiatory sacrifice. It speaks of his bodily resurrection and physical resurrection from the grave. Again, you have to say those things nowadays because it's under such attack. But this really is this title that's given him. The Son of Man connects him with you and I, connects him with the humankind, with mankind, if you will. And we remember, brethren, in fact, I want to read this in Philippians chapter 2. Let's go there again. Just turn with me there again to Philippians chapter 2 this evening. Look there if you would. We remember this glorious portion of Scripture. Again, keeping in mind the Son of Man so many times. In fact, it's a stunning thing to consider that that title is used of him 84 times in the Gospels. Think of that for a moment. The Son of Man. That which links him to mankind. That's which speaks of his sacrifice. That which speaks of his human, his humanity, is so important to us, brethren. In fact, Paul, under the inspiration of God, again writes 
for us these glorious words. Look there, if you would, at verse number 6. We call this, right, I call this the funnel. This is the Lord Jesus as he is in eternity, and he, and if you will, funnels it down. He comes, he condescends himself down. He becomes a man in taking on the title of the Son of Man. Look at how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He is equal with God. His eternality, his sonship, all of it is a stunning thing. Verse number 4, if you will, or, or uh, verse number 6, I got it, I got these, uh, verse number 7, I got these highlighted in my Bible. It starts out at number 7, the form of God. Look at number 6. But he made himself of no reputation, number six. He's spiraling down. He's condescending and took on the form of a servant, five. He's stepping down from his Godhead, from his eternal sonship. And we see this as he's condescending down. Number four there in verse number seven. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man. Three, you see all that stepping down. We're just seeing this glorious work of Christ as he puts on flesh and becomes incarnate he humbled himself to become obedient unto death to the death on the cross one i mean it just took it right from the god himself the eternal god son of god down to the death of the cross but listen again this is the the son the the son of man this is his his incarnate his carnality or his incarnation this is him living in the flesh. Verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus uh, every knee should bow, the things in heaven, things of the earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, we see this here. This is precisely what we're seeing take place. Now, brethren, it's interesting that we take note that Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, is indeed the last time that, this, that the Lord Jesus is ever, um, if you will, called by this title, the Son of Man, which is indeed, and again, we're going to see some contrasts here, which indeed is a sharp contrast, brethren, to how the Spirit of God led Matthew to first write this title concerning him. Here he is on the precipice of his return to reclaim his, if you will, his domain, the world, the earth, and everything in it that's his. And look how Matthew writes the first time, this amazing thing, how he writes of the Son of Man. Turn with me there, if you would, quickly, Matthew chapter 8, just to see, again, considering here the last time that it's written of him as he is returning to claim his rightful deed to the earth. Look at how he came, and again, great contrast, and we're going to see this now through the rest of the text, these great contrasts between the heavenly things, the earthly things, between Christ, and between the things. It's really quite, uh, as I always say, an amazing thing. Look at Matthew chapter 8 there. Look how God, the Spirit of God, led him for the first time to write concerning this title, the Son of Man. Look at verse number 19. Revelation chapter 8, look at verse Number 19 there, look what the Bible says. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The fox have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, what does it say? Hath not where to lay his head. Think of that, brethren, for a moment. The first time Matthew writes of him, 
He has nothing. When he's coming here in John's vision, when John sees him as the son of man, he's coming to, again, claim his rightful deed concerning all of the earth. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider the importance of this title that is given unto him concerning his humanity. In Revelation, John sees the son of man. He sees the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What a contrast. This is what he sees an amazing thing again who returns to the earth a second time to take possession of the entirety of his domain now look at the description there again as john sees him as he previews for us the lord jesus christ in his second coming look back there at chapter 14 of revelation how he describes this king this king of kings he tells us there in verse number 14 as you look quickly together verse number 14 look there he says He's sitting on a, on a, on a, upon a cloud, the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. That, brethren, is a glorious description. That gold there, of course, is a description of a king. The kings wore golden crowns. That's what the kings did. And so, again, we're seeing here John describing a portion of his kingship, that the Lord Jesus truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And finally there we see this crown well, it's a golden crown, if you will. And the Greek word there, not to get into the Greek too much, but it's Stephanos. And it literally means a victor's crown. It's th- th- that, that I, the crown in the Bible is used differently in different texts. Sometimes it's diadem. It literally means a diadem. Here it is not. It means a victor's crown, specifically. This is exactly what it means. It means, it pictures the Son of Man as the triumphant judge and conqueror. Amen over all of his enemies. Again, brother, in another contrast, think of the first time he came. He wore another crown. That was a crown of, you can say it, thorns. Amen. And so again, we see this glorious contrast that John is giving us between his first coming and now as he previews his second coming. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming with a golden crown upon his head and, brother, a sharp sickle, John says, in his hand. And again, brother, this is where things start to really if you will, ramp up, because that sharp sickle, as we know, is used. In fact, I just watched a video the other day. It's, it was in a third world country somewhere. I don't know where it was at. And here's this guy. You know, I'm thinking of all of the things that we have, all of the equipment, the farmers. Like, you know, we could talk to them, all these things, you know, 80-foot headers and all these things. And here's this guy out in the middle of this field with this sickle. He's just he's just walking along, whacking these things. I mean, he's got his robe on, just whacking away. I mean, it's a stunning thing. This is the picture. This is the idea that John is going to present to us of our Lord and our King and our Savior, one who indeed has a sharp sickle in his hand. Look there at verses 15 and 16. Look what it says. So the king who is sitting on a white cloud the Son of Man with a golden crown and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then John writes this, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's amazing, God's perfect sovereign timing. The time has come, the time has arrived. In fact, that that terminology that John used there, the earth is ripe, it literally means that it's overripe. It means that God has been gracious, God has been long-suffering, God has been patient, but now it's time for the reap, the reaping to begin. 
It's a stunning thing, brethren. And the Bible says there in verse 16, Look, and he that sat on the cloud thrusting his sickle on the earth, and the earth was indeed reaped. And again, brethren, these verses picture for us the final harvest of God's divine wrath. And the Spirit of God is so wise as he leads John to use some agricultural metaphors so you and I can understand what he's saying here. In verses 15 and 16, we see a wheat, a grain harvest that takes place. And this is what he's talking about, the reap. He's going to come and he's going to reap. He's going to reap the earth. And this is definitely speaking of a grain harvest, which represents, brethren, the seven vials, the seven bowls, judgments that are about to come. But he's speaking here, he's previewing again what's going to take place as we, uh, as the action of God, the judgment of God begins again. We're going to see that. And again, what a contrast, brethren, when you consider the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came the first time, he came as a sower. Think of this, brethren, for a minute. I, I was thinking about this today, just an amazing, stunning contrast. He came the first time as a sower. He tabernacled amongst us. He tabernacled amongst men, brethren. Think of that for a moment. He was sowing the seeds of the gospel of grace while he was here in his first advent. And what he was doing as he was sowing the seeds of the gospel of grace is he was pointing every man to him as their only savior. Think of that for a moment, brethren. He's coming as a reaper in his second advent. His first advent, he came as a sower, pointing men to the gospel, pointing men to himself as their only savior. What a contrast, again, we see in the Lord Jesus Christ to advents. John previews him here, again, as his second coming. He comes not as a savior, but as a just and a holy reaper. He will indeed reap with his righteous sickle and separate the wheat from the tares. And again, brethren, he spoke of this. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke of this. This is the time that he comes, and this is the time that he reaps. This is the time that he absolutely separates the wheat from the tares. And I know it's already getting late, but I want you to see this again because Jesus spoke again a very familiar parable to all of us. All we're seeing, brethren, all we're seeing as we look in this is the action, is actually God following through on what he promised he said he was going to do. And again, Christ here, first a sower, now a reaper. I want you to see this. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Again, as he lays out this parable, as he speaks, as the Son of Man was plodding across the earth, he told and he spoke to men in parables to teach them a most important lesson concerning him, concerning who he was, concerning what's going to take place, concerning his promises, concerning all these things. And again, we see this here in Matthew chapter 13. Look there, if you would, at verse number 24. Again, a familiar portion of Scripture to us. But again, this is what John is recording. This is what he's previewing. He's saying that Jesus, the Son of, the Son of Man, is going to be reaping the earth. Look there, if you would, at verse number 24. Listen to these glorious words. I, I just love to listen to God's Word. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst, thou, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And again, brethren, this is what we're literally previewing here in the book of Revelation, this glorious harvest, this glorious reaping that God is going to, that the Lord Jesus is going to be doing. Listen to what he says. Let them uh, then gather them up. But he said, Nay, lest they gather uh, up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, and gather the wheat into my barn. Now again, as we look in the text, the first portion of our text, the wheat harvest actually that we see at the beginning of our text, is done by the Lord Jesus. You know the grapes? Well, we're going to see this. The vine harvest, which is 17, 18, 19, is done by who? By the angels. We see the angels coming out of the temple. We see the angel coming out from the altar. We see the angel from the altar who has, of course, power over fire, which is always what? Connected to God's judgment. And we see that there. And so it is here. Look there at verse 36. Jesus now, if you will, speaks plainly. He tells us plainly what he was saying. There's no question about it. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. <laughs> There's that terminology again. There he is as he's sowing the seed, as he's sowing the gospel seed, as he's spreading it around to, and pointing everyone to him. I'm the Savior. This is what he did when he walked. He was sowing the seeds of the gospel concerning himself. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. There it is again. We're just simply seeing, as the Lord Jesus spoke these things, we're just seeing it unfold in the book of Revelation. Verse 40, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth. Amen. Again, this is the separation of the wheat and the tares. This is those who are saved. These are the ones who are the elect of God versus those who were not. As the son in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And he continues on again with other parables concerning heaven. Now listen. Let me just, what time is it? 8, 10. Let's turn to John chapter 5 again. The Son of Man is, John uses that terminology concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 5 quickly, and uh, we'll maybe close with this here tonight. Look at John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus again said when he was the Son of Man walking the earth, sowing the seeds of the gospel. Look at verse number 25. This, again, there's so much theology here, we certainly don't have time, but I want you just to see a couple of things. Verily, verily, verse 25, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now you understand, this is spiritual. 
This is not a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. When Jesus was here preaching, when one hears the gospel, he is brought back spiritually from the dead. He's able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the spiritual thing that he's talking about here in verse 25. He says, The Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27, He that giveth him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. You see that there again. The idea here again, as the son of man, as in his humanity, even then he was given the authority that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. It's a stunning thing, brother. It's also neatly knit together and tied together. His authority, his judgment, his power, his eternal sonship is such a glorious thing. He is going to execute Judgment, because he is the son of man. He is the one who victoriously lived a perfect, sinless life, brethren. He's the one who victoriously went to the cross. He's the one who shed his lifeblood. He's the one who was buried in a grave for three days. He's the one who victoriously rose again from the dead. Amen? He's the one that conquered death for all of us. For those who will believe, this is who John sees. He sees the son of man. He who is perfect in every way. Now, let's just quickly read verses 17 through 19 of Revelation chapter 14, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a little bit of a close because I want to spend a little time here. This is really important because we get into the battle of Armageddon. We get into, the, to the val- we, we get into so many things, the valley of Jehoshaphat, Armageddon, all of these things. This is where this goes. This is where this leads us to, again, is... This, the, if you will, the, the stopping of the action as it begins to take off again in chapter 15. It leads right to these things. And John, again, is giving us a preview of things to come. But look there again, Revelation chapter 14. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19, and then we'll, uh, we'll just bring it to a close. So we got the wheat harvest in 15 and 16, the grain harvest. 17 begins the grape harvest. Again, a metaphor that you and I can surely understand. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had the power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes, are fully ripe. And again, brethren, that term fully ripe there again is another indication to us of God's sovereign timing when he will bring this to pass. It's the same idea that they've been overripe. They've been over. God has been so gloriously patient and so long-suffering that now it is time. It's coming to pass exactly as he has saw fit. Just like the week the earth was ripe, so too the vine, the grapes are fully ripe. Look at verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, brethren, nothing can be more fearful. This idea, we've looked at this on several occasions already. The wrath of God. We cannot begin, brethren, to understand what that is. Just a, I, I got chills right now just saying it up my spine to understand what that means to be under the wrath of God. 
and in the winepress of the wrath of God. And as we're going to see here, the 1,600 furlongs. I mean, there's so many things that are, that are tied in here. The Battle of Armageddon and the north and the south. And it's interesting, and i got to close with this, but when we get into this, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see again the truthfulness of Scripture. Why would God say there that it's going to be up to the horse's bridles 1,600 furlongs long. I mean, there's so many things that are tied into the, just the history of where we're going to go and the land that's going to, the, all of this is going to be taking place in is such a stunning thing, such an amazing thing for us to consider and to behold. Well, uh, Lord willing, we'll take it up again next week there in these verses as the angel comes out of the temple, which is the heavenly dwelling of God, as the other angel comes out of the altar having power over fire, which again directs our religious attention to the judgment of God that's falling, that's going to take place. And so, uh, brothers, let's uh, pray together this evening as we, as we finish up. <clears throat> Father, we, um, well, at least I do, and I'm sure many of us here do, we just shudder when we comprehend what is taking place. We know what awaits those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who, as we're going to see just down the road a little ways, those who are, well, they're dead in their sins, their hearts are hard as stone, and when you, hur when you hurl hailstones down on top of them, weighing upwards of 100 pounds, all they can do in their depravity is shake their fists and blaspheme God. It's stunning. And Father, we tonight thank you as we read these inspired verses that you have done a work if we're saved tonight in our hearts, that you are the one who is the first great cause of every man, woman, or child's salvation. That you awaken them from the dead. Spiritually, as Jesus said, there are many who will hear his voice and live. And that's a spiritual thing. Because later on in the text, which we didn't read in John chapter 5, he speaks of the physical, where he says, you let the dead bury their dead. And Father, we thank you tonight for these glorious words, these glorious verses, a Bible that never changes, one that grabs a hold of our religious affections, one that sets us right, having a good and godly fear of you. And Father, may the Spirit of God sink these words deep down into us, into our hearts. May he apply them ever so powerfully. Father, may we in turn, then, be faithful ministers, faithful purveyors of the gospel. May we teach with godly fear and have a good balance of your, your, your wrath and your love and just understanding them from a biblical perspective and, and present them properly. And Father, again, we are humbled, understanding that our condition and the condition we were in. Father, we're grateful and thankful. 
We pray tonight all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.